Welcome to PodClast with Lara Axtell, a seasoned educator of 26 years. In each episode of PodClast, Lara explores a current educational topic from a variety of perspectives to help improve the future of education. PodClast is brought to you by Reading Horizons. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. And now, PodClast with your host, Lara Axtell. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PodClast. I'm Laura Axtell, your host, and today's podcast is the second in a two-part series on RTI, the tiered system of supports for struggling learners called Response to Intervention. Part one provided a wealth of information about the goals and intentions of RTI from two experts, Jim Wright and Dr. Douglas Fuchs. If you haven't already listened to episode four to hear their explanations and their experience with RTI, I invite you to do so. As they mentioned, RTI isn't always implemented adequately, and research on its effectiveness is limited. Since RTI is the most commonly used model for intervention in schools, what do these two experts think could be solutions for improving RTI? In addition, we'll hear from a school administrator about the RTI process they have used successfully to intervene with students in her district. I'm happy to welcome back Jim Wright to the program. Mr. Wright is the founder of the RTI resource website called interventioncentral.org and the author of four books on RTI. On the last episode, we talked about some of the issues that arise when schools are implementing RTI. Today, our interview will continue right where we left off as Mr. Wright outlines his recommendations for improving RTI. Mr. Wright, thank you for joining us again to talk about RTI solutions. Thanks for inviting me, Laura. I'm going to jump right to the question. Based on your experience across the country, could you provide recommendations to schools for increasing the effectiveness of the RTI model? What do you see as potential solutions? In schools that have really helped classroom teachers to see the importance of strong instruction and differentiating the classroom, part of the success there is I've got teachers who, when a student begins to struggle, they can both identify that student, articulate where the areas of concern are, and they can really tap into some ideas to support them. So those teachers feel much more empowered to, to take on a wide variety of different learners and be successful. And then everything kind of interlinks and, and supports. So in that school where the classroom teacher at Tier 1 kind of feels like she or he has more tools and they have greater confidence, we're not getting quite that pressure you alluded to earlier to get these students into Tier 2 and 3, a supplemental intervention. And so we're, we're, we're much more able to rely on, you know, objective data let's say, a school-wide screener that can look at at-risk kids to help us in a rational way to identify those students who are at risk for, you know, academic failure, get them into Tier 2 and 3 services. So it's not just willy-nilly driven by, you know, teacher concern. It's actually um, data-based, and we're picking those kids who, who obviously most need that support. Those same schools then are finding that Tiers 2 and 3 we don't have these vague goals for, for students. We want to improve reading, and we'll do reading stuff with them. What we're doing instead is these schools have really outlined some, some good, solid programs and practices supported by research that are found to be effective, and they're training people to use those. They're collecting data frequently enough so kids can enter and exit at several points during the school year, and that makes it a more fluid process. And that also increases their capacity because as students, let's say mid-year, kind of close the gap and catch up, they can then be exited down to, let's say, Tier 1 support, Tier 1 level, and that frees up more, more spots at Tiers 2 and 3 for other students who are showing emerging needs during the school year. These same schools that are doing this well 
try also to document, it doesn't have to be overwhelming, but document in some kind of written form what interventions, what supports a student receives so that we're able at some point, if a student, for example, needs a special ed referral or if you want to communicate with next year's teacher about what kind of support plan a student received in the previous year, we're able to pull all that together pretty easily instead of having all that information be either hard to find or lost. I think what that does is it, it has schools much more focused on identifying the needs of particular kids, matching them to the appropriate level of support, maintaining that support for as long as needed but no longer. So the original model said let's be proactive in finding these kids, let's make the best use of our resources, and let's try to continually improve what we're doing. And for schools that are doing RTI well, I really do see that they're doing that. I think that they're fulfilling the original intent of RTI. First thing I want to do is put it in perspective. So in schools that I've worked with, the reality is that if they're implementing RTI, we call it response to intervention, right? But really, it's comprehensive school-wide reform because we're talking about changing what we're doing in the classroom. We're talking about what pull-out services look like at tiers two and three. That's a that's a pretty big ticket item to to implement. So I tell schools, if you're implementing RTI, give yourself enough time to do it and do it well. That's three to five years. We don't want to rush it because schools have to be able to implement RTI using existing resources. And it's also true that schools can't move any faster in implementing RTI than staff are able to assimilate that change. So the first thing I'd say in terms of you know increasing the effectiveness of the RTI model is if, if you're a school that's just on the cusp and beginning to implement RTI, give yourself enough time to do it and do it right. Um, that said, I think it's really important, of course, and this will not surprise you, that we've got to have our building principal on board with RTI. If she or he supports RTI, we're going to be very very likely to be successful. If they don't really back RTI or have strong support, RTI isn't going to be, isn't going to be you know, a success. Uh, when I work with schools, that's my number one diagnostic indicator. Do I have a principal who kind of knows RTI, the supportive, they're able to support teachers uh, to kind of see the value of that, uh, and they're willing to make that long-term commitment. Principal buy-in is like a light switch. Either it's on for RTI or off. When first implementing RTI, I think it really makes sense for schools to sketch out some kind of a several-year plan about how they're going to implement. Too often, I think schools look at the RTI model and feel overwhelmed with it because they think they have to do it all at once, and they really don't. But you can't really do this staged rollout of RTI if you don't have some kind of an understanding, a plan in place for how that should unfold. I think it also makes sense in schools, most districts have you know, multiple campuses, multiple schools, to have some kind of district RTI leadership team that's comprised of central office representation as well as some reps from each of the schools. This is a team that would both help to put together the plan I've already mentioned, would check up on implementation of that plan, would take thorny questions that have to be resolved for that district. How are we going to document our RTI interventions, for example? Where does that get stored? Who retrieves it, et cetera? And it can really reach consensus across schools about how we're going to be doing RTI. So that RTI leadership team at a district level, kind of as a command and control, the oversight of RTI is a pretty important piece. Finally, when, when we're implementing RTI, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. Is what we're asking teachers to do, the schools to do, in the name of RTI, is it really, is there a likelihood that it's going to result in uh, better instruction, better student performance? You know, we're not just doing RTI because someone says we have to do it. We're doing RTI because it's meant to solve a problem. The problem is some of our chronically underperforming students. So is it making the problem better? If something is not making the problem better, then stop it. Let's do something different. You know, when you asked that question, it got me thinking, too. When I first got into schools, this is 
you know, way back, one of the things that I was discouraged by is we had so few resources for intervention. And in comparison to the time when I got started as a school psychologist, remember working with my teachers and trying to put together intervention ideas to share with them, uh, to now, there's actually been this proliferation of really great web resources. So to really help RTI go forward in the school, I would just put a shout out for a couple of neat web resources that I think can, can help schools. You mentioned in the introduction my website, Intervention Central, but there's also a neat website. It's called the Evidence-Based Intervention Network. Dr. Chris Riley Tillman and colleagues out of the University of Missouri have posted a collection of intervention ideas that I think you know schools would really benefit from. They put a lot of work into it so schools don't have to, to kind of give teachers that uh, toolkit of ideas. Mr. Wright, thank you for contributing such a valuable perspective to this discussion. It was a pleasure. Thanks for calling me. This is my favorite topic, so I welcome the opportunity to talk about it. Our second guest and returning expert is Dr. Douglas Fuchs. Dr. Fuchs is a professor at Vanderbilt University and an educational researcher and writer. On the last episode, Dr. Fuchs discussed some of the difficulties with accurately assessing the effectiveness of RTI and some of the flaws with previous research. Today, he'll be sharing what he thinks could impact intervention. Thanks for joining me again today, Dr. Fuchs. Nice to be here. You have proposed some improvements in the RTI model regarding structure and implementation. Could you share what you believe would lead to a more effective model of instruction and intervention? Yeah. So first off, I really, I think it's a a big mistake. I think it has been a big mistake during the last 15 years or so for very well-intentioned people to be pushing a model of RTI. There should not be a model of RTI in this country. There probably shouldn't be a model of RTI in a state or even perhaps in a school district. There should be more than one. And to keep things, you know, relatively straightforward, I would say there could be or should be a quote-unquote more ambitious model and a quote-unquote less ambitious model. The more ambitious model would be defined as having more tiers, three tiers, or some people prefer four tiers. A less ambitious model would have two tiers. In principle, are more tiers better than fewer tiers? I would say yes, in principle. But when you're talking about a district that provides its school-based practitioners with very little material and otherwise critical supports, if the district doesn't have the money and it doesn't have the whatever, the money and the general resources to help its school-based practitioners and the school-based practitioners feel, you know, tremendous pressure, tremendous anxiety. Many kids are not doing well in the regular classroom. The idea of coming in, pretending, you know, to be riding a white horse, so to speak, into the school saying, what you guys need is a three-tier or four-tier RTI system makes no sense. What a school that is struggling to meet the educational needs of its students, what that school needs is not a three- or four-tier model. It needs a two-tier model and something that is more doable. It's a two-tier model, which we outline in, in the paper that we had published in Exceptional Children that you're referring to. A two-tier model is not a simple model. 
but it is a more doable model. And what it basically does is, what it attempts to do is to encourage teachers and school-based administrators and others to think about the regular classroom. How can we feasibly change the regular classroom to make it stronger, to make the instructional environment stronger and more accommodating of a greater academic diversity of kids? And the good news here is that there are decades worth of research and validated programs that could be used in regular classrooms to strengthen those regular classrooms, to strengthen the achievement uh, in those regular classrooms, especially in the areas of reading and math. And in this article that we published in Exceptional Children, we refer to these validated programs as supplementary programs. So they're, they're not meant to compete with what the district is expecting the teacher to to be using in terms of curricula and so forth, but it is supplemental. And there are a number of these supplemental programs that can be used that have been used in many places. So the first tier of a two-tier model is to try to fortify, and I can't do justice to the whole thing you know, uh, in this podcast, but is to try to fortify the regular classroom. And the second tier is special education. And we're not talking about special education as people typically think of special education. We're talking about a special education that really does deliver individualized instruction. And if we could come up, if we could construct and help teachers implement a fortified regular classroom, we would have many, many fewer kids in need of additional services. But those who needed the additional services would get them with an intensity that's appropriate to their needs. So that would be, you know, my recommendation because, as I said before, a struggling school that's having a very hard time making tier one work does not need to hear from researchers or administrators or anybody else that they need to implement three or four tiers because it's, it's just not going to happen. Thanks so much for your insight on RTI, Dr. Fuchs. We appreciate you taking the time to participate in this important discussion. Well, thank you very much, Laura. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. We'll be right back. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons. With data-informing software and teacher-led instruction, students receive targeted intervention that leads to rapid reading improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com trial for 14 days of free access to our software. Our third guest today is Lynn Hobrach, an educator and administrator who, with her team, has developed an RTI process in a district in Texas that works. I'm really excited to share their solutions. We are taping here in Boston at the ASCD conference, so thank you so much for joining us. And I'm going to have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your experience. Very good. I'm Lynn Hobrach. I am from Friendswood ISD. That is in Texas. It's a bedroom city for NASA, just a little outside of Houston. And I've been in education for 30 plus years, currently assistant superintendent for the last six years, a principal for eight years before that, and do the math on many, many years as a teacher. Great. And we're going to talk today about RTI. A response to intervention and a hot topic for actually a long time now because there's so many models out there. So I'd really like you to kind of introduce 
how you experienced RTI as a classroom teacher and administrator, and then kind of where you've seen that go and some solutions for what you think could work. I'm going to start with a story when I was a principal in my first years at an elementary school. And in the first year, you always, uh, you're pretty quiet and you're just observing and taking a look at just how systems are. And one of the places that I noticed potential place to work on was that when students were having difficulties, we knew it because the teachers would be going, ah, Lynn, we've got to do something. And then it turned out that he who screamed loudest got the interventionist. And I just knew that there had to be something better than that. There, there needed to be more of a system or a process. And so I went out researching and learning just how, how could we create a better process. Visited schools who were doing it right. Uh, went to conferences such as ASCD to uh, just figure out a system. Out of that, we arrived as a completely team effort. And this is where we involved the teachers, LSSPs, the uh, speech paths, my interventionists such as, and we call them SRP, supplemental reading programs, just all of our experts, our counselors, we came together to say, what is the system that we could use here so that we get the right kids in? And out of that, we developed a process that we then trained our teachers on so that they all knew it was we were going to base how students received intervention on data, which meant we needed to do some data collection. Out of that, we then defined our tier one, our tier two, our tier three. We start with universal screeners and our entire building at the, and I had a K3 building, we all had a common assessment and those tools are different, but every student in the building took that common assessment. Then those common assessments occurred at least two times a year, if not three times a year. But every student had those. Then my specialist collected that data, such as my reading teacher. And in many cases, we had three to four data points. So we would say, okay, in this assessment, these, these are our bottom 10%. In the, let's color code them red for the whole student population in kinder. In, in this assessment, these students were in the bottom 10% color code them in red. And this third assessment, because you can have sometimes multiple data assessments, then we looked at the whole picture and we said, oh my gosh, this kid has three reds, you know, we, we've got to do something for him. And if one student had one red, maybe we can do something with that child in the classroom. So the first piece was looking at our big school picture and deciding who are those students who truly needed intervention. And those were our ones who had moved from a tier one to a tier two level and get that reading support or math support. So it sounds like the first step is you have to have the data. <laughs> you always start with data. Yes, yes. And sometimes as we would look at that data and once the teachers were able to see this kid had three red dots because we would have something and here comes the next step. We would have round table. Round table is where the entire kindergarten set of teachers would sit together and we would produce this data because we all own those kids, not just my class, but all that. And once those teachers would start to see oh my, my kid isn't quite <laughs> is in need as 
this student, they they could now not say, but 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 they saw that for our capacity, uh, for the number of interventionists we had, these students were the ones who truly needed it. That's that's interesting though because there is, as you mentioned, kind of um, competition sometimes for how do I get help for my kids because of course you're so invested in your students, but by allowing the whole team to really identify who are our neediest students in the school that really targets the intervention to those students who exactly. need it the most, even if they're your child and not in my class. That's right. It's, it's our kids. And along with that, our tier one instruction has to be strong, which is why we're always working on developing those teachers. We, at least in my school, we said that, you know, there should be maybe 10 to 13% at most students who are in a tier two level. When you are going beyond that, when you are intervening, you know, with multiple, you've got to go back and say, what's, what's happening at my tier one instruction that so many students look to be floundering like this. But for our capacity, I had two reading interventionist teachers. And so I'm going to talk about reading, which is <laughs> the biggest place we intervene. Our capacity there allowed for X number of students. And be, and if your student didn't make it, those interventionists also worked right with the teachers at Tier 1, unpacked the student issue, and gave teachers uh, tools to work with those kids in the classroom. And and that empowers teachers. We have to have teachers with efficacy. I can own this kid. I can work with this kid. I can change this kid. But then if that tool has been given to that teacher and that teacher is using that tool with fidelity and now she's still not moving that student, well, here comes the next part in our RTI. We met quarterly as a quote, round table. And that's the whole group of teachers meeting. And we looked at that again. How have our students made progress? Where they've moved? And maybe now it's time for one to exit because he got at the tier two intervention, targeted instruction on his area of weakness. Those interventionists know how to diagnose and prescribe. And we want to graduate those kids. We want to fill in that gap and get them out so that they're back in the classroom. That's where greatest instruction is we don't want lifers at tier two. So can we talk about that for a second? Because what a lot of times occurs in schools and what many administrators talk about is the fact that students do enter tiered intervention and they just stay there. They don't actually exit back into the general classroom. What's been your experience with that? Well, first of all, I believe that our K-5 is the best place for all of this to happen. And K-2 is better than four five, you know, because we already get a student mindset uh, when the achievement equals mindset. And if they don't feel that they're successful, they might turn into uh, lifers. And we, that's not what we want. So intervening early, finding early, intervening early is important. But when they're at that tier two level, they are now with specialists in groups of six working on that specific area gap that that student needs, collecting data. And at a tier one level, when those teachers were going, eh, they were collecting data once every two weeks to just show is it growing or not. But when we're in tier two, they're collecting data weekly. And And those interventionists are going, okay, this isn't working. What do I need to adjust, fix? Because we do want to really work on that student's issue and fill in that gap. 
And then if that tier two interventionist, and we say we've got to give that child nine to 12 weeks. So we always do have a revisit. After 12 weeks, there's a revisit. Did what we do make a difference? Didn't matter. So that these kids can exit. But if those, I, I called it collecting the dots. We we put those data points on a graph. If that graph is sloping upward, we're going success, success. Keep it going to get them on grade level. But if that data collection is flatlining, now we're saying maybe there's more to this child with the intervention. Maybe we've got a learning difficulty that we need to really examine. He goes into a tier three level. A tier three is highly intense, but for another nine to 12 weeks, very targeted. Maybe it's one to two children now. So now we are just one to one on that child with that very targeted intervention. And if we can't move that needle, maybe that child has a learning disability of some sort that we need to examine and go into a special ed setting where we can slow down instruction and work with what deficiencies that student might have, learning difficulties that student might have. So let's talk about two things. One is often schools use paraprofessionals in those tiers. And um, while they are certainly well-intentioned and often, you know, have great relationships with those kids, one of the concerns that's often raised is that they're least trained and they're working with the most um, struggling readers or, or students. What's your, what's your response to that? As a principal, I know that this is always a struggle. We're always, you know, I, I, I never had enough money and nor, nor people, but you've got to work hard at uh, giving those kids the best you got. And so my reading interventionists were highly specialized in reading. In reading, at the level tier two, those those reading teachers are the best you can get. Um, Along with that, sometimes we can find many computer programs, and, and that's another option is that there's some uh, teachers are the best, but there are also computer programs that students get very engaged in and that also assist us. At, but even at Tier 3, it, it wasn't a para unless that para had a systematized, explicit, explicit program that, um, that took the kids step-by-step step in, in that learning progression. Ah. Uh, have you seen success with parents who, if they got the training and had a very explicit program, could work effectively yes, with those indeed. kids? Yes, indeed. Because sometimes it's kids who need extended amount of practice on something. And a para who knows what she's supposed to be practicing can, can provide that instruction also. But it, it, we, we need that explicit, specified program for that uh, child. And have you seen when that process that you've described is in place, actually seen kids move out of out of tiered instruction back into the classroom <laughs> and be successful? Absolutely. That's why it's so very exciting. And that's why over time when I was principal and, and we had to explain how we were going to do RTI, how you weren't just going to get your kids in. But once we saw um, how this system graduated kids and got them back in and got them running in the race. Uh, Numerous success. Uh, That's what RTI is about is just uh, helping those kids out and getting them back on the path. So 
Yeah, that's the way to do it. Do you think, um, based on what you've seen um, and your experience with those students, that you have actually intervened in time to prevent a child who might have otherwise ended up in special ed? Yes, yes, yes. Because if you let that go, if you fill in those gaps early uh, with that intervention, it doesn't have to turn into a problem. And conversely, have you found that students who really needed special ed because there was a learning disability, that was so much more easily identified so that the process allowed that student to get intervention early? Laura, you're exactly right. That's, that's what this RTI uh, process is about. And so if I could go more into the steps, the round table is when the, gr- gr- the grade level is talking, and that's when we're seeing who might go to tier two. But once we... Um, once we now are looking at those tier two students, we have a next step called in our district problem solving team. And that problem solving team is now a group of experts plus the teacher who are really starting to unpack one student at a time. Look at all of his package. Uh, if it, the counselor brings stories. My ESL teacher might bring information. Uh, you, depending on who that student is, it's, it's, it's a whole story that makes us, helps us to understand that child and know exactly where we need to go and work with him. If you could talk about kind of the, the, the takeaway, it sounds like, number one, you have to screen students early. You have to collect data. But the thing that you keep coming back to, which has worked so successfully for your school, is communication across grade levels, across um, departments, and to communicate at, in a timely fashion over time so that students aren't just getting it, you know, oh, first grade, they've got a problem, and then second grade, we start all over again. It's that continues over time. Thank you, Laura. I, I, communication is something that I felt was most important. And so teachers know how this process works. Um, students it, know how things are going to work because we let the parents know also, you know, this is how we're going to intervene. This is our plan. We're going to give you progress uh, notes to let, your, let you know how your child is moving along. Uh, it is about communication and and uh, about the school owning all kids, not just my class having my kids and how good they are. Thank you, Ms. Hobrach, for providing such a thoughtful model of intervention and giving us real-life solutions for improving services to students. I hope you found today's episode to be informative. Effective instruction and intervention for struggling students is so important. We encourage you to view and share the resources mentioned by our experts and educator and the solutions they proposed at readinghorizons.com forward slash podcast. Thank you to our guests and to you, our listeners. We invite you to join us for the next episode of podcast on project-based learning and education innovations. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of podcast. To be notified when future episodes are available, subscribe to PodClass on iTunes. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review. To submit discussion topics or to recommend a student, parent, educator, or expert to be interviewed on future episodes, please send an email to podcast at readinghorizons.com. 
PodClass is brought to you by Reading Horizons, the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. With data-informing software and teacher-led instruction, students receive targeted intervention that leads to rapid reading improvement. Visit ReadingHorizons.com to learn more.